Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to Plus One Podcast. I want to thank you for tuning in and thank everybody that's been checking out the episodes so far and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen. It's been great to hear from you and uh, you can send me questions. Kraz plus one, K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com is the best way. And I've been getting a lot of questions and a lot of great suggestions for guests. And we've got a pretty stacked list of guests coming at you in the next few weeks or months. Um, so tune in every Monday. We drop a new episode. I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media, who helps me put this podcast together and gets it out to the world. They also have a lot of other great shows and great content. So check them out at OsirisPod.com. My guest on the show today is someone I've looked up to for a very long time. Incredible guitarist, amazing composer, someone who has changed with the times and reinvented himself many times over, but always kept his voice. And though he's not a singer, as soon as he starts playing his guitar, you know exactly who he is. He's played with so many legends like Miles Davis and George Duke and Billy Cobham and many, many, many others but has also made countless solo albums, many of which are classics to guitar players. Much like his former band leader, Miles Davis, he's always able to find the best musicians to surround himself with, and as a result, is always evolving as a musician and a composer and arranger. One great example of this is when he linked up with the band Medeski Martin and Wood. They made an album called A Go-Go. To me, this album was a perfect recipe that blended John Schofield's compositions and beautiful improvisations with Medeski Martin Wood's organic feel and psychedelic take on these tunes. About a year after that album came out, I started playing with Soul Live and we started touring a lot, and that album was a huge inspiration for us. Soon after we started, we actually linked up with John. He ran into us at a festival and we got to play with him. Soon after that, he actually was on our album called Turn It Out, and we collaborated with him quite a bit over the years, which has been a huge treat for me, and now he's kind of become a mentor to me, and I'm extremely grateful that I've gotten to perform with him and spend time with him and learn from him over the years. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. John Schofield. Well, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have one of my idols on the show today, Mr. John Schofield who I have listened to pretty much my whole life. And I'm very fortunate that I've actually gotten to play with you quite a bit over the years now. We've actually known each other almost 20 years, which is kind of crazy. That is crazy. Chris, I didn't know it's been that long. You know what I was thinking about? I was was hanging out with Marcus King, and I think basically I'm, I'm the age now that you were and he's the age that I was when I met you. <laughs> Does that right. Make sense? Wow. <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So you met him and he was a, a young whippersnapper. And all yeah. And uh, yeah, we've we've gotten to do quite a bit together, which is always Man, we have, cool. which, is, which has been great. Man, I remember when I, I met you with Soul Live and, uh, in the early days. Yeah, a while back now. I think it was... We met. There was some festival in Boston where we were playing yeah, out Cambridge. in the street. Yeah, it was it was outdoors. Yeah, and you guys were around the corner playing on the street. Yeah, and I was too. They had a nice festival. Yeah, and I, I was I was nervous. I gotta tell you, I saw you out there, and I was like, oh man, I'd been listening. That was when a go go <laughs> had just come out, and I that was like our Bible. We would listen to that so much. I just loved that record. Um, the compositionally. And and I just thought what you that the magic you created with Medeski Martin and Wood was just so unique, man. Oh man, thanks. It was yeah, it was a special uh, uh, record for me, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it just worked out, right? It did, it did. And did you was that like a conscious thing? Were you kind of keeping an eye on this jam band world that was happening? Well, yeah, I yeah, I was, and I thought I could. I mean, it was specifically those cats, right? Because right. I was on Gram of had been on Gramavision Records. I might have not even been on the label anymore when their their stuff started to come out. Um, so I, you know, I knew about them because of that label. And I thought they were, you know, into some groove kind of stuff. Uh, 
that I could relate to. And then I said, wow, this is wild. There's this whole younger generation uh, playing, you know, stuff coming out of the stuff that I like too. Right. And, uh, and then I, I heard them. And then especially when I heard Shaq, man, I said, well, these guys have to include me yeah, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> there they were, you know, keyboards, bass and drums. And, and uh, so I called them up and we made a go-go. Man. And the songs, yeah. did you, did you have it pretty mapped out when you met them or did you guys? Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I, I, I knew I wanted to play with them because I've been listening to their record and, and talk to them. So I wrote the stuff with them in mind. Yeah. Right. Right. And you know, I, a lot of your records, I mean, I feel like one of my, one of the reasons I follow you so closely is, is that I feel like you reinvent yourself constantly or you're constantly evolving is what I should say. And each record is different from the one before. Um, you've made, you know, one, by the way, I just got to say quickly that quiet is one of my favorite albums that a lot of people oh, don't you. necessarily know. And, uh, um, I urge people that are fans to go check that one out if you have not checked it out. Um, but, you know, going from that to like Groovelation, um, I used to listen to Who's Who back in the day. Uh, I remember. Well, remember when we played years ago with uh, Lettuce and we played that tune of mine. You right. guys learned uh, Who's Who. Yeah. Right. Which also that gig, which was at the Wetlands. Um, shout out to Pete right. Shapiro, who now has become yeah. the Pete Shapiro that everyone knows. Shappy um, was an owner of the club there. And also, you know, the Wetlands was kind of a centerpiece to the New York scene um, where tons of, you know, Warren Haynes, Dave Matthews and Fish and all these guys used to play there. And Lettuce did a residency. That was kind of our first kind of coming out. Soul Live had played there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called you up and you said yes to coming out down there to sit in with us. And then I think you called me maybe the next day and you were like, Hey man, what's up with that drummer? And, uh, yeah, with right. Adam Deitch. and, and then you guys ended up starting the Uber or, you know, you had the Uber jam project with Adam. Yeah, that's right. I thought that's, that's the way it went. Yeah. That you turned me on to Adam, which I will be forever grateful for. Yeah. 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 And which in that band was also amazing. I think you're, you have a knack for putting the right people together. Well, you know, I mean, it's something that I've always uh, liked to do, you know, and uh, I've been lucky enough to in a position where um, I had to come up with different <laughs> ideas because the way the music business is now, it's it's you always have to have a new angle, even though it's not really a new angle on yourself. It just it kind of can be uh, appear that way to right. the, you know record buying public or whatever you know in other words they'll take you for a tour or you can get gigs everywhere if it's a different different lineup right you know? it changes and every that's time been, that's been frustrating well, for me because hey can i just tell you something john this yeah, is so yeah. crazy uh i'm so deitch i am interviewing john schofield right now guess who just called me during the <laughs> Adam, interview get off the phone Adam. <laughs> No, I'm talking to John Schofield right now. Uh, me? Yeah. And we literally hey. mentioned you. He's on my podcast. We, that's so wild, man. Wow. And, and uh, so I, I just had to put you on speaker. I haven't talked to Adam in a while. And we literally just said Adam Deitch. And we were just talking about how he met <laughs> us at Adam. Adam, how you doing my over guys. there? Can you hear John? I'm doing all right, man. Yeah. I can hear hey, you, bro. Hey, How you feeling? I, I, I just watched you with, um, you know, man, the, with uh, Break Science on YouTube, on uh, Facebook. The thing you posted. Oh, I yeah? love that piece. Can you dig it? Man. Yeah, the acoustic version, right? I'm digging it, man. Yeah, the acoustic, yeah, yeah the acoustic sessions. Well, I was just, maybe, <laughs> I, mean, I, I was just saying how John is one of my favorite artists because of the fact that he evolves with the times and in a tasteful way, you know, like some people will like be, you know, when it's time to be but like every album to me evolves with the times, but in a tasteful way where it's not like, Oh man, that album was so cheesy or this, that, and the other. I always go back to every record and, and I, and it's such a like great, like capsule of that time. So maybe uh, if you don't mind now, I'm going to just throw you in the fire and speak on that just for one second. About um, to go. Yeah. I mean, there's the two greatest disciples of, of Miles Davis are you and Herbie because you guys followed not only 
became leaders yourselves and became icons yourselves, but you chose to evolve with each record, like Crash just said. Right. You know, right. You, you, you know, you look, you look at other other people that have played with Miles, and they kind of stayed in their thing, you know, Stern and you know those kind of guys, and they they kept their their thing going, which is great. But the way that you and Herbie have evolved and continue to to always change the thing and evolve electronics and evolve whatever's happening. That's why you, know, you guys are really, you know, you took, you know, you know, for miles and, and, and just made it your own and, and, and created a legacy, you know. That's totally just from miles. It was being around this guy who was so into doing something different every time and retaining his milesness, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, wow. That was uh, serendipity right there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I swear to you that we were talking about you and that will be documented in the podcast t- seconds before you call there we me. Go. Well, there so, we go. Uh, <laughs> anything, uh, any last words right. on Schofield, on Mr. Mr. John Schofield? I mean, uh, I, I would be nothing without this man. I, I, owe, I owe him my <laughs> entire career and my everything. And, and uh I love you so much, and I just want you to quarantine and not even go to the store. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, that's basically what we're doing, Adam. Don't worry. But I love you, and I was lucky to get to play with Adam Deitch. You know, we all help each other out. I mean, yeah. that's the truth. That's the truth. It's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you for calling. Thank, Adam, thank you for being in touch with the universe and knowing when it was time to call. That was amazing. I mean, with you, it always that always happens, you know? <laughs> I appreciate you, man. I, I will call you right after this. All right, cool. Love you guys. More than you know. All right. All right. right. Peace. Peace. Well, that was nice. You never know what's going to happen around here. (laughs) You never know over at Kraz's place, man. It's always happening. I swear that wasn't planned. I I promise you. (laughs) Um, And I was meaning to call him today, actually. But uh, anyway. That's hilarious. Yeah, that was a nice nice little segue. (laughs) Um, But yeah, man, you know, I think that going back to what, what Adam and I said, you know, you... And I think, you know, I think I have tried to follow in your footsteps a little bit in that you're always kind of keeping your ear to the street, trying to see what's going on, finding new people to play with. You know, I, I, um, am always, you know, looking for the, I love playing with young people too. And now, now that I'm Mm -hmm. not young (laughs) anymore and, uh, you know, not a lot of guys do that. A lot of guys get set in there and what they do. Well, yeah, and they a, do their thing. It's easy to get set in your ways, and I'm set in my ways too. And and you know, uh, but but there's just something that happens when you get a different perspective on stuff, which somebody from a uh, a younger point of view can just open you up in a certain way that uh, you don't think about. You know, on your own. Absolutely. Speaking of that, in your young days, I know you started playing at like 11 years old. Is that right? Well, I got a guitar when I was 11. Right. <laughs> it took a while before I could play it. And what was the, was there like an artist or an album that kind of set you, you know, man? Yeah. You path? know, you told me, you told me that you might ask me that. So yeah. I've been thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, let's see. No, well, let me look up, you know, there, there were all the albums I loved, you know, which were the albums of the late sixties that I had. And, and uh, pretty much the same as all the other kids. I mean, it was an amazing time because blues and blues rock was popular music. I mean, like everybody was into it, you know. And uh, and then I got into jazz in the late 60s and that, you know, changed my life and made me, you know, help. You know, I wanted to study and, uh, and that's what I'm still doing. But, uh, you know, I, I thought I would maybe tell you about some different concerts I went to. Yes, please. Um, and uh, let's see, the, the first one on my list here is uh, Jimi Hendrix at, um, at Hunter College in New York City. Wow. And, uh, you know, so talk about uh, something that changed me. When I first heard the tune Fire on the radio, that's the first Hendrix tune I ever heard. And uh, it was on like a little transistor radio up in my room, you know, where I would go to sleep but listen to the radio when I was supposed to go to sleep to get ready for school. But I had a transistor radio, so I'd sneak it in there and listen. And it was 
uh, on Murray the K's show. He played Fire, and yeah. the, and it was just like man, that track just blew my mind. So I had heard, you know. Uh, Hendrix a bunch I had his first album and then I went down to Hunter College this was I guess 68 yeah and um so it was about the same time that I was really starting to 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 listen to jazz and to think well maybe jazz is something I want to get into and I was taking guitar lessons from a guy in in Connecticut which you know cuz you're from Connecticut too right just yep. this little music store you know I think and, I went uh, to that same music store the one it, in New Canaan there was right? one in New Canaan and yeah. one in Wilton yep, yep and and I went to the and I took lessons there yeah. uh, from Alan Dean at Merritt Music Merritt Music you, that's where yeah. I took my first guitar lesson that's so crazy. Yeah well me, me yeah. too bro yeah and uh, but anyway, I was starting to get into jazz, right? But I I was into Hendrix. I was already way into the blues and 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 all. And Hendrix, uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience blew my mind so much that I thought, forget it for playing blues rock. Right. It's it it's actually like I it's been done. It's like there's no way I could ever achieve anything after that. Uh, shocking and exhilarating but you know just mind-blowing experience of hearing that band and hearing jimmy really i can and, only uh, imagine yeah and so i so i thought and here i was you know 16 or something and i thought well maybe if i play jazz i can just practice a lot right you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then the other concert that i saw back then around the same time that blew my mind was the Jeff Beck group. Oh yeah. Which at the Fillmore with Man. um with Rod Stewart. Oh yeah. As yeah. the lead singer, you know. Right. And Ainsley Dunbar was on drums and Ron Wood was the bass player. Oh really? And, wow. Crazy. Yeah. And and they totally slayed it, man. And, and I was in like almost the front row for that one. And that was around and, the. I guess that was when. When was Wired? Because like Wired. It and was Glow before, by, that. before it that. Before that. Because that was. That. Yeah, that's right. Because that was when Rod Stewart. It was. Yeah. Um. You know. It, it. It was before Wired and Blow by Blow. Right. Which was that was a couple of years later. This was when they first came out, and and you know, they did you shook me, and oh, man, uh, yeah. and they did um, uh oh man. Uh, now I can't, uh, I can't remember the tunes here, but this is the first Jeff Beck group record. Right. And, and it was just slamming and that blew my mind. And, uh, then the other thing, uh, in the rock and roll area was you would know about this because there was a country club in Norwalk, Connecticut called Shore Haven. And in those days, in the late sixties, there were more kind of rock concerts around in Fairfield County in the suburbs of New York, where we are from, than there are now, it seems. Like that, like those groups would play the big Fillmore or whatever on the weekend, but then they would play like in high schools and country clubs during right. the week. It right. was amazing. I mean, you know, Cream and all these groups played in, in uh, little towns. So I went to this country club. And Sly and the Family Stone were playing. <laughs> wow. And I had I had heard Dance to the Music on the radio, right? Yep. Which was an amazing track. But I, I don't think their album had even come out yet, the very first Sly record. And yeah. so I, I go with my friends, you know, here we are. You know, I mean, I had my driver's license and I, could, you know, would smoke cigarettes and I was a you know, grungy, long-haired suburban kid. Yeah. And we're just standing there. And I had no idea what to expect, really. Um, but it was just like a, a name band is playing in your area, so you go. Yeah. And uh, and they came out, and the first song was Stand. Oh, man. And it changed my life right there. Right. <laughs> the, the, the shit was so incredible, and it was so funky you know and the songs were so great so anyway i and it was all in a in a like uh a 300 person standing room only ballroom so it was uh pretty intense wow crazy now at the same time i was starting to get into jazz right mm -hmm. so um i went with my friend to hear thelonious monk at the village vanguard wow. and uh and I had like a Monk album that I just loved. I didn't know 
jack shit about jazz, but I wanted to. But that music spoke to me, right? Because it does. It will do that. You know, his music is just uh, um, special. So I went down to the Vanguard, and the vibe was just so intense. Um, just walking in that club, and uh, I went with my friend uh, John Davidson, who had had been there before. So, right. but I I was just like a newcomer. We got there way early, and uh, and then Monk came and he played, and I'll just never forget. And I can't remember the music. You know how you can't remember music in a certain way, but you can remember the feeling in the room. Oh yeah. Um, and I'll never forget that. And so I started to go to the jazz clubs in New York, as well as like the Fillmore, you know, so I was doing all this stuff at the same time. Man, that era for music. I mean, being able to see Thelonious Monk, Sly and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, that's that's three of my top that I could if I could go back in time. But there's that's the way it always is, though, yeah. because I got to hear that. But then there were these older guys who heard Wes Montgomery and Coltrane and Charlie Parker yeah, and stuff. Right, right. And I wish I could have done that, you know. And when, when you're a little bit older, you'll be having young guys come up to you and say, oh, my God, you knew this guy or whatever, right, you know. Right, So it's, that's the nature of life. Amazing. <laughs> and did that, you know – were you playing at that point when you saw Sly? That was that. That was around the same time. Oh you were yeah, starting to play. I was playing when I saw all these guys all of it. Wow. with with our little band in high school. You know, I actually it was kind of a good band I played, and I I got lucky. I mean, the first band was just kids from Norwalk, and they were from you know uh, this kind of soul music scene. There actually was like you know these little white kids that that wanted to play soul music, and uh, and our our favorite group was the other blue eyed soul group, the Rascals. You know, right. yeah. And 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 we copied those guys. And oh, they came to to our high school and played the Young Rascals. Wow. And they totally killed it with good loving and that whole oh, thing. Yeah. You know, I, I'll never forget that. But you know, we liked Motown and Stax records. You know, and tried to do that. That was when I was really young, thirteen, fourteen. Wow. And then and then when I was maybe 16 i joined a band where some of the kids one of the a couple of the guys had graduated from high school already and we we could play in uh in bars so uh i played you know in 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 new york state it was 18 the drinking age so i don't know i had a a, a phony draft card even though i was 16 i had somebody else's draft card so we would play in bars and stuff and we even got to play in uh staten island and in on the jersey shore and stuff not much it didn't really happen for us you know right, we right. wanted to be a wanted to play clubs all the time but we weren't good enough but uh yeah i was i was so at that time i was playing in crappy high school bands yeah and when did you start kind of getting into jazz as far as playing, you know, where you Well, I, you know, in Connecticut, I didn't know anybody who could actually play jazz except for my guitar teacher at Merritt Music. Right. So in high school, I mean, I made all the right I had a bunch of records and I was trying to learn how to play on changes and bebop, but I couldn't do it. Right. Um because it's really hard to do that. I know. know. And and uh and so I, I, I had been practicing and stuff and trying to get it together. And I had one friend who could play a little bit better than me. And we tried to get through some tunes together, you know. Was there, were you into Wes at that point? Wes Montgomery? Yeah, I had like, Wes and, yeah. Wes and Jim Hall. Oh yeah. And, Hall, yeah. and Grant Green and, mm -hmm. uh, and Tal Farlow. And, 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 you know, I was just a jazz kid going to Green's in, in Westport. Right. Um, where they had a really great uh, music store. You know, it was that woman, Sally, who then started her own record store. And she's not right. with us anymore. But she was very helpful to young people in the 60s. You could go in there and she would, you know, she said, oh, this kid likes guitar. So she told me about Jim Hall, about Wes, about all this stuff. And I bought those records. Um, but yeah, you know, I couldn't play. But then I went to Berkeley School of Music after high school because I, was just convinced I wanted to be in music, even though um, I really, you know, I, I wasn't like a wonderkind by any means, but I was, you know, I, I, I was, I guess, an okay blues rock guitar player who wanted to play jazz. 
but I've only been playing a couple of years, right? right? But I just wanted to be into it more than anything. And uh, my parents went for it. They let me do it. I'm forever grateful for that. And I went up to the Berkeley School and studied up there. And I was not like a hot shot my first year there at all. But I met some really good guys that could play. Yeah. You know, that were like 20 years old or 19 and could already play some kind of bebop. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 that was great to meet kids that could actually play so I could see that it could be done. I mean, it's so weird how parallel, I mean, I grew up in the same area and then I went to Berkeley for the summer program, which is where I met Adam Mm -hmm. Deitch, met the lettuce Mm -hmm. guys. And for the first time was around people my age that could, that were way better than me. You know, they were like, Mm -hmm. I had just been in my hometown playing, you know, with my friends that weren't, you know, they were in, they would play a little bit, but they weren't into it the way I was. So being around other people my age that were passionate about, that's what, lit me up you know that was when i was yeah, like okay yeah. um I very, do very similar very similar yeah and um you were you did about two years at berkeley is that right i i actually was in school for two and a half years okay. as a student and then uh dropped out to just be in boston and play and practice and and i was getting little gigs and and i just wanted to practice all the time right right and did you and and then how did that evolve into like playing you know with George with George Duke and Cobham and you know I was okay so I'd started out with rock and roll right yeah and and blues really specifically blues the other guy was BB King for me when I was in high school I would go hear BB all the time and that that was pretty uh, uh, life changing for me. But but then I got into jazz and I got a big fat jazz guitar and was trying to learn how to play standards and uh, dropped out of Berkeley just to practice. But I was playing with the good some of the good jazz players in Boston, getting that happening. And uh, I got through Alan Dawson, the great drummer up there. Uh, I was recommended to play for a week with Jerry Mulligan. Ah, and uh, he's, you know, one of the giants of jazz and and. Uh, he was very nice to me and uh, that worked out well. And then I got a call uh, right around the same time I was, I was starting to do stuff in New York and I, and I had in the same month, a couple of things happened. One was that I, that I got a call from Jerry's manager and he was doing a live recording at Carnegie hall where Jerry and Chet Baker were having a reunion and I got to be in the band for Man. that. Wow, and it got to be other. It was the first record I was ever on, and uh, I was so nervous. But it was at Carnegie Hall and everything, you know. So I was doing that. That was in November of 1974, and uh, that same month, um, there's a drummer named Horace Arnold okay. who uh, teaches in New York. He's a very good drummer, and he had a. This was the fusion days, you know, the re- Return to Forever Mahavishnu oh, yeah. era. Oh yeah, and. Uh, and Horace had gotten a record deal uh, to, to make a fusion record. And um, he had made his first album for Columbia, and he was wanted to make his second, but he decided to put a band together, and Columbia wouldn't let him do the record unless he made a demo of the music. And then they were going to say whether or not they would let him record. So somehow I got in with him, and, and through some other musicians in Boston— Dave Friedman, the uh, uh, vibraphonist. And um, and so I was playing for free with this guy, Horace Arnold, and we went and, you know, I played with him a couple of times and we went in the studio to do a demo and his friend Billy Cobham produced the demo. Oh, wow, okay. And I just looked out because the next month, John Abercrombie, a uh, great jazz guitarist, uh, left Cobham's band. Cobham's band at the time, he had just left the Mahavishnu Orchestra, had started a band with Mike and Randy Brecker and uh, John Abercrombie and uh, and had one of the great fusion bands of all times, his first fusion band, uh, yeah. Billy's first band as a leader. And so then I got the gig, you know, because Abercrombie left. Wow. And uh, and so I played for a year with the horn band. First, it was the Brecker Brothers, and then they they left because the Brecker Brothers band got famous. And uh, and so I, but I stayed with Billy that year. And then Billy decided he wanted to have a a a, a co led band with 
George Duke, and right. he got me. And I was I was just lucky, man. I got in, and Cobham really discovered me. And that that was you know different than just trying to play on a jazz guitar in in Boston, trying to learn to play Scrapple from the Apple. All of a sudden, <laughs> I was playing really loud music with Cobham, and and I, I I really had to refer back to my rock and roll heritage and this fusion music, you know. And did you feel that? I mean, I can't imagine someone doing that more naturally than you because your ability to view, I hate to hate to use the word again, to fuse those things. It's kind of like, an, unlike anyone else, did you feel like I'm in the right place right here? Or were you like, I got to like, well, you know, Abercrombie was a, a jazz guitar player, you know, but right. he played on light strings on like a Les Paul. He had been in the band before me, you know? So I just sort of, you know, and I kind of, tried to play like him at that point i guess you know but then as the band evolved there'd be certain tunes like red baron and stratus and stuff oh man that were that funk stuff. that were funk you know yeah. yeah and 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 i would play more bluesy on those tunes right and i but because i had that in me because i had been a, a fan of blues music you know right um, and there were you know a bunch of guys playing fusion and stuff at the time but, you know, I, I guess I also had bebop and lines because I had wanted to play like a saxophone player. And, you know, my, my idols at that time were like Mike Brecker. You know, I was just I became friends with Mike. I met Dave Liebman, uh, who oh, I got yeah. to play with uh, after Billy's band. I played with Dave a lot in, in the late 70s. And, and uh, I, I always wanted to play like a tenor player. But, you know, here I was playing guitar and, and I would play the instrument and it, it came back to bending a note was what really worked on the guitar, you know? <laughs> so I was, I was trying to do both. And I don't, not many people were doing that the way that you do it, you know, um, that well, I, I mean, there were some, but, you know, I mean, guys like Tommy Bolin who were, were in the the spectrum. I mean, his that album yeah. spectrum, the Billy Cobb. I mean, amazing. I love, amazing but he was really Tommy. like a blues guy. You know, he was like a, he was a blues yeah. guy, and that's why that record was so amazing. Yeah, was he was this great blues, tasteful guy, and then it was Jan Hammer and Billy, and it was this special combination. You know, yeah. that was different, different from a blues band. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And uh, and uh, Jan was incredible. I used to listen to Jan on keyboards, and and that that's where. I, uh, you know, it was like, wow, those lines, you know, he could play those lines that sounded kind of like McCoy or something. And he was bending notes that sounded like uh, a, a great blues guitar player. Right. And he was doing stuff with pedals and, and technology. Yeah. You know, but he was. He I was, mean, Fusion was in full swing. Yeah. When I, you know, the Mahavishnu Orchestra had just blown everybody's mind. I mean, and that it, was out there. Chick also, had his band with Al DiMiola. You know, oh, that, yeah. Al, like Al also went to went to uh, Berkeley. You know, he was like a Berkeley student who got nabbed out of Berkeley to play with Chick like the year before I started playing with Cobb. He started playing with Fraternity Forever. And these bands, by the way, back then, they were kind of like rock star. I mean, they, they were, you they guys were, to it was, it was popular like, music. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we played big theaters. Yeah. You know, and, and the people that came, I mean, sure, it was kind of guys that are, you know, it was a little guy heavy and all yeah. compared to, to pop music. But there were a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was big business. For sure. For sure. I mean... It's that that whole thing. I mean, now to to fill small jazz clubs. I mean, I, I I admire how you have been able to stay ahead of it. But it's just it's so hard. Like people coming up now and to be a jazz musician is just near impossible. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's it's sort of hard because I think jazz has become this academic thing. Yeah. Which which had to happen, I guess. It's kind of to me, it's it's like Chopin or something, you know, and that's not taking anything away from Chopin. That music is incredible, right. as is the music of Charlie Parker and 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 Bebop and Coltrane too, you know, and all. Um, I don't know. It's it's a weird time uh, yeah. to be a young jazz musician because it's so academically oriented. It just seems foreign to me from the whole vibe of going to the Vanguard to hear Monk. You know, right, that was right. so 
so intense and cultural and and uh third stream and and you know uh uh um absolutely uh not normal you know what i mean right. it was another <laughs> alternative universe that really appealed to me that yeah, that yeah. was that was there for you if you wanted to to do it it was so unmainstream and revolutionary you know got to know a little bit about how you linked up with Miles Davis and how well, that happened. Oh, yeah, that that happened. So after I played with Cobb and stuff, I, I, I was now the late 70s and I'd been on the road with Billy for like two years. Right. But I came back to New York um, and, and didn't have a steady thing. I was playing jazz. You know, I was trying to do my own stuff. I was playing with Dave Liebman, who was a great teacher for me, the saxophonist. Yep. And uh and I played with Gary Burton's band and uh, for a while after Pat Metheny left. Um, and then I was just around in New York doing different stuff. And uh, Dave Liebman's band in about, I don't know, 1979 or something, um, played, maybe 1980. Yeah, it's probably 1980. We played at 7th Avenue South and Miles came. Miles had, had been retired, you know. And uh, Miles had taken a break from music because he was mad, I guess, at Columbia Records for not promoting him like he thought he should be because he was the, you know, acknowledged king of jazz at the time. But he just didn't play for a couple of years. And he came down to the club. We were playing. It was unbelievable. Um, And so I got to meet him, you know, and uh, and he was weird, man. He he uh, I. Dave Lieben brought me up to him and said, Miles, I want you to meet my guitar player, John. And Miles goes, you sound good. And uh, I said, oh, Miles, you're my favorite musician. I idolize you to hear you say that. And he goes, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I met Miles. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. And then, and then he started the band with Mike Stern, you know. Right. Then like the next, the next year, he started with Al Foster and, and Marcus Miller and Mike Stern. And uh, I, 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 I hesitate to talk about this, but I will because I know Mike is cool with this. Right. Mike was Mike was one of the you know was so great, and he came to New York and he blew everybody's mind. But he had kind of a drug habit, not kind of yeah. a drug habit. He was really strung out, and he was playing in Miles's band, and Miles loved him. But Mike was at a certain point just unable to – he always played good, but it was just, well, is Mike going to be in shape to even – is he going to live through the night, man? You know, it was bad. So Miles called me, and I was friends with Mike. Right. And, you know, we were playing together just in little clubs around New York and stuff. And, and Miles called me to come in just to sort of be there. To He was hoping to – get Mike in shape that way by having me be there. And then Mike's thing really fell apart. Mike, by the way, has been clean and sober since like a year after that, since the early eighties. And, uh, he's luckily made it out and he's in great shape for many years. And, uh, but miles, uh, let him go and kept me in the band. And, uh, that was a rough, period um, you know for mike but i got to be the only guitar player and i was you know all together i was with miles for three years yeah um and uh it was incredible man any i mean how was it traveling with him and were, i mean were you kind of did you get to know him pretty well or was he one of those well, guys that i would not i would not say really well because yeah. you got to understand miles was a superstar you know yeah. it was really one of those things like you're in the band and Miles just shows up, and and all of a sudden he's there. Like you know, he didn't do sound checks. Right. Um, he went to some special room, and if he wanted to talk to you before the gig, he, you know, you would be summoned by 
you know, he had a staff, you know, yeah, and everything. Yeah. Miles was a superstar, but yeah. I got to know him. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 uh, it, it, there was never anything other than the, it was the King and his, um, <laughs> uh, disciples. And I was one of them. And you were part of a very, uh, small group that were insiders in miles's world and it was it was you know great (laughs) is there anything you would take away from that experience you know as a band leader like how as a band leader how was he like you know you know first first of all miles was all about the band right and and having every having the music work and he talked all the time about different ways to approach music and uh, really you know it was some really deep stuff about trying to stay fresh and creative and to play on the spot improvising you know and and about rhythm and about leaving space and about playing stuff that was fresh and and it would be a different thing every day he was always thinking about that and that's what i've found with all the great jazz musicians i've met they're always just trying to get it right and 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 allow it to be wrong in order for it to be right and all kinds of tricky funny stuff you know in order to try and get that creative spark that we all know about that happens once in a while and that's what you live for and that's what miles talked about all the time and that's what i got out of it was a, a confirmation that my instincts were correct right, and right. uh and that the whole what we all share is correct because all of us that have been in it like you and me and uh all of us sort of know this inside that there's this thing about getting it fresh that first take whatever it is you know and so that's that was the really good stuff there was a lot of stuff about playing with miles that made you knew what not to do as a band right, leader because right. only only miles could pull this stuff off right and and uh and he was a a character and sure. uh and and he really liked to mess things up and uh at that point he was sort of so famous he was just like toying with life and uh sometimes he would toy with the band you know and <laughs> bet, uh and say all kinds of crazy ass shit you know Wow, what an what an amazing experience, though! Crazy, but it was the best. Yeah, I was so lucky to be around this giant, you know. Yeah, um, and I loved it, and uh, it was crazy, man. Once, once he, uh, you know, all the songs were vamps, right? You know, yeah. when we would play, there was one tune; it was a twelve-bar blues, but all the other ones were, you know, vamp on one chord and play, and you know, and Miles was the master at at playing on one change and making it interesting and finding the and doing you know it was great but everything was like that and one one day he came up to me and bill evans the saxophonist who was in the band oh yeah and he said he said you motherfuckers aren't playing the changes <laughs> and, and 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 we said miles but it's just a seven you know and he said no it's not and he, he said went over the piano he goes write this down <laughs> and he said he would play some stuff on the piano he said like b minor D seven sharp nine, E augmented. Yeah, F minor seven flat five, G major seven, and then it was like so. It was like twelve chords or something. He goes, now they're the changes. Yeah. And then the next night we played, you know. And then he said, I, don't, I think that night he said something like, Yeah, I heard you playing the changes. That's good. Yeah. And you know, I, I had not been playing the. Ch- I've just been playing what I always play. And then the next night, he was like, "Motherfucker, I told you to play the changes." And and I said, "Oh, but Miles." He goes, "Listen, okay." Went over the piano, <laughs> and he said, "Okay, now write this down. E half diminished, <laughs> F sharp seven flat five sharp oh, nine, yeah. and then the totally different chords." And then the next night he got really mad at us, you know, and he said, I'm I'm never, you know, and it was this ridiculous thing where we couldn't call him on it because neither of us really wanted to just take him to task for being like that. We knew he was being an asshole, but uh, it was funny now, you know. As far as that band, when that ended, was that when you started? Were you making solo records? Like, well, I had made, I had made a couple of, yes, I had already made. 
some some jazz records on Enja, and I had yeah. made two records also on uh, uh, Arista, Novus, which was their jazz thing, and one of them was Who's Who. Yep. That, and then then I joined Miles. I had made a couple of records. I oh, started okay. first record was in '77, and I joined Miles in '81 or '82 or something. Right, and so and and Who's Who was that? Steve Jordan on drums. It sure was. Yeah. Man, that was a killer band. Yeah, I, I, I loved it, man. Steve Jordan and, and Anthony Jackson. All right, Anthony and, Jackson, and, of course. And, Ke- and Kenny Kirkland. Oh, man, and, Kenny Kirkland. And, and, yeah, and Sammy greatest. Figueroa on percussion. Killer and uh, You know, and then I did some tracks with Dave Liebman, Eddie Gomez, and Billy Hart, too, on that same album. We did right. some jazz tracks. Um, but, yeah, getting to meet Steve... Uh, was also great man because he was great even then he was he's younger than me and he was in the 70s he was already uh, great and he played you know more in a way than he does now now he's the consummate r&b uh super pocket drummer uh taste you know yeah for sure and and he always had that in him but he was he he was had learned a lot of drum stuff right. back then he was that he would play a bit more at that point. Yeah, yeah. he's flexing more. <laughs> you know, more of the fusion thing was in him. Yeah, yeah. I think we kind of answered the second question that I sent you, which is, but I, but I'm curious your take on this. Is was there an album that you created, or a song, or even a, a concert you performed that you kind of came away from it knowing, okay, this was a turning point for me as an artist, you know, or just a moment that you're proud of where you really, I mean, I feel like there's, you've gotten many of those marks in your career, but if there's one that, that you're most proud of. Well, you know, I, I was there, there, you know, there's a few things, but um, I think first of all, really playing with miles and, and, and knowing that I was on the right path, because my idol miles you know yeah, told me i was cool that that was huge and then you know that gave me confidence and then the stuff that i did after that i think was better because i had that confidence yeah, of and course. then we made that record uh still warm right um i was in miles's band then you know and it was with omar hakim and daryl jones and don grolnick on keyboards and uh, then I made Blue Matter after that, where, where I met Dennis Chambers and, and Gary Granger. Yeah, classic. And, and you know, and those records, I, I feel like I really had enough confidence in myself that I could play, you know. And that kept going. Then I, then I, I, I was okay after that, um, you know, but it, it took a minute, yeah. Um, sure. There wasn't any one gig where I... I uh, that I can think of where um, it was, you know, it's always been like I play good one day and, and then I think, Oh, I got it. You know, I had a great gig and then I'll have another gig where it's not there. Um, and, And that's the way it's been my whole life. And I've, come to realize i think that that's just the way it is (laughs) yeah yeah and that made me think of something because in the the grateful dead world which you and i both have have uh Mm -hmm. have crossed into somewhat Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. a lot of deadheads um they kind of treat the concert going experience of like a uh, a card trading type of thing where like, which show did you see? And, and did you see this version yeah. of that song and this version of that song? And you got to see eight shows for, a, for a, the best one to pop out or, you know, not every right. show, you know, and don't uh, you love, I, I love that about that scene, you know, because yeah. that's real, you know, and that's the way the jazz scene was when, when bands would play night after night in the same club. Yeah. And, and I, I know my friend, the great Al Foster, the drummer, told me when he was a young guy, he went to hear Sonny Rollins, who then again, he ended up playing with Sonny later on in the 70s. And But this was probably, this might have been late 50s or early 60s. And Al said he went to hear Sonny and, and, at, at a club. And afterwards, uh, he went up to Sonny and said, oh, Mr. Rollins, that was great. And Sonny said, oh, no, no, you got to hear Sonny on a few nights to really... Right, they get it. And that's the same thing with the dead people. You know, they give it, they realize that it's a 
a, a breathing organism that that is different all the time for sure and and uh and that's really what music is too you know definitely i mean and it's also one of those things where you just play a random grateful dead tape for someone and right off the bat they're not going to just be like that's the most amazing thing i've ever heard but you know when you become part of it it's it's this breathing living organism yeah. that kind of it, it pulls you in you know it's and uh it's, and they have they have patience right which you which you need patience for improvisation you know and that that's you know it's not always going to be great you know but then when it does hit it um when it when it's that special inspired thing with people that are stretching out and and trying it uh then that's magic and once you get hooked on that there's no coming back for sure and how did that come about did phil lesh i know you've played with phil and friends um, yeah i did a lot of times that was all through warren haynes Ah, okay yeah, Warren, I met years and years ago uh, in, well, the early 90s. I was playing at Sweet Basil with Joe Lovano with our jazz group. And in comes this guy, and uh, he's got long hair, kind of looked like a biker to me. And he said, is there any sitting in? <laughs> and, and, and and this was like a real straight jazz club, you know. And uh, and I said, no. And, yeah. and he said, well, I'm the guitar player with the Allman Brothers. And he had just gotten the gig and it come there. Yeah. And, and, but he was really nice. He knew about my stuff, you know. Yeah. And it turned, and we became friends. Um, and uh, he, he's been really, really uh, uh, great bringing me into the jam band world. Um, he was one of the first ones. And uh, we've, we've met been friends ever since and right, he got right. me the, he, he told phil about me and, and thought it would work for me to play with phil yeah i love hearing you play that stuff uh was it uh was there a learning curve to to it as far as like fitting into that, that yeah role? you know i mean the thing about group improvisation which phil likes to do is a challenge for everybody because when you learn to improvise you're sort of you know, I, I I just like kind of play my solo over a rhythm section. You know, it's not about uh, everybody playing at once. You know, and okay. Phil likes it to be uh, very free. And uh, so at first it was a little disconcerting, but because I knew about quote unquote free jazz and had experimented at that at that you know with my friends and stuff. I, I, I sort of feel like I was ready for it because of that, yeah. because I knew about that. And uh, no, the learning curve was more that you have to just let it happen. And 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 it has to be uh, you have to be open to what's going on at the moment. Right. So I didn't have to learn about that, though, because right. I knew about jazz already. Yeah. And I knew about, you know, that kind of music. Because I started out playing Morning Dew, you know? Yeah. Um, but talk about you, you, the Jeff Beck version. You ever hear that? I have Rod not, Stewart actually. Oh, I need yeah, to check that, that out. That's a hell of a Morning Dew. Check yeah. that out. <laughs> okay, I will. I will. Yeah, I mean, for me, too, it was hard at first to know and also to not get like discouraged when every moment wasn't right you know because i would be yeah like, oh, man, yeah exactly one thing got messed up but phil kind of like he'll kind of laugh he'll kind of smile at you when something isn't right and be like ha ah. you know like yeah he's totally he, this this is a thing about phil yeah he is everything is cool i yeah. mean he'll let you know if something's not cool but if you're just listening and going for it it's all cool for sure. He wants you to do your thing with the music, which I respect. <laughs> That's right. He would always tell me, don't forget to be weird. Right. <laughs> and also, I just love the fact that, I mean, he could easily, A, do nothing, or B, do the, have the same band and do the same music every night, but he wants different, he has to rework the band, and he's at sound checks and rehearsals every single day, and I mean, yeah. for an 80-year-old no, no, guy, it's it's pretty amazing yeah. the well, amount of work he puts in, for you know? for his age isn't it you know yeah. wow and but but i think that you know that the the dead were those guys were really uh beatniks you know yeah and they were into they were conceptualists as well as being musicians so they saw that that they brought this other thing to the music besides just playing the song you know this uh 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 
desire to to go somewhere else with it, to go further, to use a Grateful Dead word. Term, yeah. Well, I think as a result, they created something they had no idea they were going to create, which is this yeah, massive right. following that come to every <laughs> single show because yeah, it's never was, the same. You know, it's never yeah. the same. And they just stayed together, man. And yeah. and uh, I think that Jerry Garcia must have been something else, man. Man, I I my um, appreciation for him just grows every year or whatever. You know, as as I get older, mm-hmm. um, and also mm-hmm. the songwriting between yeah. him and Robert Hunter, it's, it's yeah. amazing. You know, yeah. those songs yeah, are kind of like love a, what they wrote. It's timeless stuff. Well, I want to end with if you have time a a road story i don't know if you got anything for me that that you'd want to tell uh oh well i have so many road stories (laughs) and and many of them many of them can never ever be repeated but yeah yeah i'd like to tell you a road story about your friend adam deitch oh this is good great (laughs) perfect um oh boy but you know when we met at when you turned me on to adam how old were you guys? I mean, he was what mid twenties, something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe even or, younger. Or early twenties. It was twenty three, twenty four, maybe. maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was twenty three, but forever thirteen. You know, <laughs> this is the way Adam is. And 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 when I met him, um, when you introduced me to him, you know, I loved his playing. You know, and and I said, okay, this is the drummer I want to play with. And uh, and I hired him right, and, and he had been with the Average White Band, and, uh, um, and so he he um, joined my band right. And he, I remember, he flew from like an uh, Average White Band gig or something to our gig, and and uh, just came in by himself. And he got to the hotel, and we all sort of arrived at the same time at this hotel in Washington D.C. And and uh, we had a few hours before the sound check. So we all checked into our rooms and then when, you know, we said, okay, we'll meet in the lobby at four o'clock or something, go to sound check. And we came down to the lobby and Adam had stayed in the lobby and gone to sleep on the couch in the lobby because, (laughs) because he was scared that he would miss the sound check if he went to his room. Right. He's probably right. And, and you know, and and you know, bless this guy. That's that's how he's so sweet. He was like, "Wait a minute, I'll miss it. I'm going to fall asleep." Yeah. Turned out, Adam at that point he'd been on the bus with the average white band. You know, he stayed up till dawn every day, no matter what. He just couldn't go to sleep. That has not so, changed. That has not. So changed. I think he's still like that. And uh, that's why we made a record with Uber Jam Band once called Up All Night that was dedicated to Adam. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, oftentimes, so he was my neighbor when we lived in Brooklyn, and we would often fly together, you know, and travel together. And I would always have to tell him it was an hour before. It was actually, it was Deitch time. We There was actually I know. full on Deitch time. <laughs> or I yeah. would tell him yeah. at 9 a.m. and when it was 10 a.m. And then, it, you know, it was always a game to figure out. And then he started, he was on to me after a while. He's like, I know you changed it. And then, he, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then, but no matter what happened, I'd be waiting outside for half an hour, no matter what. Minimum. No matter what. Oh, God, he got but, you, you know, again. But I got to say that no one is more dedicated to their craft than Adam. I mean, he's yeah. up all. No, Adam's he's, all about the music. He's up all he's night all- working. He's working on his yeah. music. He's working on his yeah. craft. He's writing songs. A lot of people don't know that he writes and arranges so much of the lettuce music and so much oh, other yeah. stuff. And he, yeah. he may, I've never seen anyone create as much as, as that guy. So I, you know, I, we, he gets a pass. Yep. <laughs> I know. Because we all I know he does. So he definitely gets a pass from me too. Because, yeah. But yeah. Th- that's, that's a good one. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, such a blast to talk to you and, and connect. And, you know, I've just learned a lot from you over the years and I consider you uh, a mentor for not only oh, me, but a lot of the, a lot of my friends and, and, and family, you know, the lettuce guys, soul live. And, um, yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, you, you've helped me so much, Kraz, bringing me in to play and, and, uh, with lettuce and becoming friends and getting to check you guys out. Wow. So it goes both ways. Thank you, man. Well, um, do you have anything coming up, uh, that, that you want me to shout out? Uh, I have a new record coming out. 
on ECM records, um, which is uh, a different kind of record for me because it's just trio with my old friends Bill Stewart and Steve Swallow, and we play all Steve Swallow's tunes. Oh, wow. And these cool. are the tunes that I learned to play back when I was a young Berkeley student, and uh, I've known him ever since, and I always loved his compositions. We went in the studio just for a few hours one day, just played them down, you know, but I've been playing them for 40 years, so I didn't have to do more than that. And uh, it's called Swallow Tales. Swallow Tales. I will definitely check it out. Yes. And uh, I urge everyone to go online and whatever your preferred method is and, and look up John if you have don't already. And if you don't, shame on you. Um, <laughs> and uh, check out his incredible um, body of work. I mean, how many albums is it now that you've put out? I don't out? know, but it's uh, 40 plus, I 40 guess. plus. Again, John, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate Thanks, you man. coming and doing it. So let's all just stay home and... Uh, and uh, wash our hands. Sounds good. I want to thank John Schofield for being on the show today. It was really great talking with him. Shout out to Adam Deitch for being in touch with the universe and knowing we were talking about him and calling me during the interview. That was great. And I'd like to end the episode with a tune off of the album A Go-Go, which is John Schofield featuring Medeski Martin and Wood. This track is called Boozer.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time. Mm-hmm.